Because there were Nephilim in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children unto them. The same became the Hagibarim, the mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. There were Nephilim. That's the Hebrew word. Unfortunately, it's translated as giants in many English translations. They did happen to be giants, but that's not what the word means. The word in the Hebrew is Nephilim, and uh, it's important to understand this word. It comes from a root meaning Nephal, the fallen ones. Now these are fallen angels, these are bad guys, you'll see in a minute. When they found some way to procreate with human women, they gave birth to hybrids. They were different than either of their parents, because they were part human and part not human. And these were the Nephilim. And this idea shocks many people. It's very disturbing to many people, but let's try to keep an open mind and see what the scripture says and see what implications it has in our understanding, not just of the flood of Noah, but the rest of the Old Testament. You're listening to Mary Cry Radio. Here's Basil Ingalls. Hey everyone, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 064. 064? 064. We have uh, Minister Dante Fortson on today. Yeah. But before we get into that, just a couple of things. Thank you so much to everybody who heeded my request on the last flyby there and stopped by our iTunes store page area and left a review or a rating or both that helps us out so much you don't even know and for those of you who have just been promising yourselves that you're going to do that i would urge you to uh keep that promise and go and do that on the itunes store leave us a rating of a number of stars and also you know do a review put a little couple words in there for your fellow human being tell them all the awful things you think about us <laughs> and we're at 93 ratings right now so we still haven't hit that 100 mark almost there almost to 100 i know there's at least seven of you out there just <laughs> you're just feeling the conviction of the holy spirit and you just need i'm just telling you man your life will be much better if you just <laughs> give it yeah and we also uh got a, a few more likes on facebook so thank you for that and if you haven't Hallelujah. liked us on facebook go ahead and go there and like our facebook page yeah maybe you want to wait to the end of the episode um just so you can like make sure you like with it some sort of honesty okay other than that oh yeah t-shirts t-shirts on the website there canarycryradio.com they are going semi quickly so make <laughs> Depends on what wow, size. Wow, that's a good sell. I'm just saying, depends on the size. Some <laughs> sizes. I mean, it's it's, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. Um, but uh, we have a general idea of the physical size of most of our listeners, <laughs> just judging by the t-shirts. So um, go there and do that. They're awesome. Um, and you know. Oh, you, and by the way, what for the people that ordered the shirts, you will be getting a small, little, extra, tiny treat with the shirt it's not just the shirt that you'll get in the mail so wow cool will the people who order it now get a tiny treat as well eh, we'll see well 
you're supposed to say yes because that means that they'll go get a tiny treat. Sure. Yes. Sure. Yes. They will okay. get a tiny treat. Tiny treats for all. And it's not edible. It's uh, oh. something more useful. Oh, okay. Well, anyways, there you go, everybody. Go do that. Now, without further ado, our interview with Minister Dante Fortson. Our guest today is a minister and author of several books, including As the Days of Noah Were, The Sons of God and the Coming Apocalypse, The Serpent Seed Debunked, Beyond Flesh and Blood, The Ultimate Guide to Angels and Demons, The Lines of Seth, A Brief History of Heresy, and his latest book, Silent Screamers, Book One, The Rise of Bacchus. We'd like to welcome Minister Dante Fortson. What's up, Dante? Hey, what's up, man? Thanks for having me. Dante, how's it going, man? Thanks for taking some time for the interview today. Uh, why don't you start out by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and, uh, you know, what you're doing now. All right. Um, well, basically, I was born and raised out here in Las Vegas, Nevada. And as I grew up, I developed some pretty interesting interests based on personal experiences with the supernatural. And so um, those interests took me into being very interested into alien abduction, stuff like that. Um, and then one of my own experiences led me to start looking in the Bible for more information. And that's what really led me to a lot of the research that I do now, which is based around the supernatural, uh, Noah's flood, end times prophecy. And that's led to the writing of all the books you just mentioned. Sweet. Awesome. Okay, so um, we got this new Noah movie coming out, and we've mentioned it on our past two episodes, and we've kind of been getting um, a couple people's opinion on it. And, you know, there's varying opinions on what we should do, if we could, should support the uh, project, or, you know, Mr. Ray Comfort was adamantly against Christians uh, going out to support Hollywood in this endeavor. What are your thoughts about the whole movie in general? Um, I'm, I'm not going to go as far as saying, Hey, don't support it. At first, at first I was pro boycotting it. Um, but at the same time I knew I was going to see it. So that's kind of hypocritical of me to tell everybody else not to see it knowing full well that I'm going to see it just to see, you know, what it's about. Um, and I know the movie is based off of a graphic, a series of graphic novels Mm -hmm. and I love comic books and graphic novels. Um, so I can watch the movie. I know it's not going to be scriptural for the most part. Um, but I can still watch the movie and enjoy it because I know the the facts that go behind the scriptures. And so I'm not going to be a person that, you know, easily swayed in my belief based on a Hollywood movie. Right. So I can enjoy it for what it is. So I say this to people, if you're watching it for a biblical perspective on Noah's flood, you're going to see it for the wrong reason. If you're watching it just because you want to enjoy a movie that might be very good or interesting, then by all means, go see it. Um, But if you're looking for answers, look in the Bible, Genesis chapters 5 through 11. Um, They cover all of Noah's life, the flood, and everything else. That's where you will find your actual answers and scriptural basis for Noah's flood. There you go. All right. Very level-headed, Mr. Dante. Good job. (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, uh, this kind of leads us into what we wanted to talk about today, which is basically the Nephilim, the sons of God. You've done a lot of work in this area. Just real quick, what has been your journey of understanding the sons of God? Let's start there. 
obviously first mentioned there in Genesis 6. Before we get into the Nephilim, and I know they're tied together, obviously, but did you have um, answers right from the get-go? Did you? How did you come to your understanding of who the sons of God were, and, and who do you think they are? All right, well, my, my journey into the understanding of the sons of God started with my journey into aliens um, and UFOs and that obsession. And as that obsession grew, I started to, to learn more and more about um, being a contactee and sort of things like that. And I don't consider myself a contactee, but I tell people this all the time. I attempted to channel what I believe to be extraterrestrials at the time. And I had an experience based on that to where I believed that they were evil. At first, I thought they were our space brothers, you know, the, the brainwashing stuff that they feed you over and over again, stuff that they're saying on the History Channel. This was before the History Channel made it popular. This was in the late 90s, like 97, 96. Um, I think it was 97, my, my uh, freshman year in high school. And Wow, that young. This, yeah, I, I got into it really early. I actually started really getting into it about eighth grade. Wow. And I, I was you know, doing research on SETI and all this other stuff. And so I, I realized that you know, they were sending out these signals with no luck. But all of these psychics and UFO magazines and um, in different books I bought, because the Internet wasn't what it is now. Right. So most of the stuff I was getting from library books and um, books that I, I would go to the bookstore or get magazines on occasion. And there were, to me, I think there were more UFO books out then, magazines out then than there, were, than there are now. And so I tried to channel these entities thinking that, you know, these are space brothers. This is how the psychics do it. They make contact. They get this information. They feed it to people. And that's not the experience I had. The experience I had, um, to me, felt evil. And so I went from believing that these were our space brothers to immediately believing that there was something different going on. And so I started to search for answers. And it now, wasn't until... Now, real uh, quick. Are, okay, go ahead. Are, are you able or comfortable sort of talking about the channeling experience itself? Yeah, that's fine. Because um, I'm really yeah, interested actually, in that. I talk about it in my book as the days of Noah were. I, I go to a full detailed account. I spend like, uh, I believe it's about a half a chapter just talking about my experience and what led up um, to where I am now. And basically what happened was I attempted to channel. I never channeled anything before. I really didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I tried the whole clear my mind thing, uh, try to focus on what I was trying to contact, that whole thing. Just like that alone in your room or do you light some yeah. candles or how did that work? Uh, there's no candles. I had to see for the dark. Um, I was, I was kind of obsessed with the dark because before the aliens, I was into vampires and werewolves and, you know, stuff like that way before Twilight and all these shows came out. I was really into this stuff back in the day. And so I was kind of had this obsession with the dark. So I know I was in the dark, sitting around trying to channel stuff. Um, I didn't know what I was doing, so I didn't even think it worked. And later on, this is on a Sunday night. Later on, as it gets into Monday morning, I remember waking up. I fell asleep, um, not during the channeling. This was after the channeling. I watched TV, and I fell asleep with the lights and TV on. And when I woke up, it, it was kind of interesting because my lights and TV, they were still on. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. And I remember hearing this buzzing sound and this high-pitched squealing sound. And I looked out. I had a blanket over my window at the time to keep all the, the sunlight out in the morning. And so I kind of just peeked out the window thinking, you know, it might be a helicopter or something flying super close to the house. And then there was this bright light. And suddenly I was just, it, it felt like I was, I don't want to say dreaming, 
but it was almost like I was asleep again because everything just happened like immediately. I heard the sounds and then all of a sudden I was on my side, on my left side facing my wall in my room. And this, this is, I can tell you what side I'm on now because, you know, once, once it was over, I can, you know, I knew by the way that I woke up. Right. But anyway, I'm facing the wall in my room, which is where the window is. And it just feels like I'm slowly lifting off my bed. And then I feel these presences behind me. It felt like four or five of them. And it just felt evil. And then there was this drill. It, it, I, that's what I describe it as. Not a real drill, but I don't know what it was. It felt like a drill and it sounded like a drill. And there was a lot of vibration going on. So that's what I associated with a drill. Hmm. And I just remember praying for everything to stop. Now, this, this experience seemed like it went off for about 30, 45 seconds. And when everything stopped, at first I was too scared to open my eyes for like maybe a minute or so. And when I finally did, my lights and TV were off. The room was pitch black, which kind of scared me, even though I was into the dark. That kind of scared me. And so I have this digital clock with these bright red numbers on it. And I look at it's 3.30 in the morning. So I lost 30 minutes of time. It only took 30 to 45 seconds. And so it was at that point that I knew something wasn't right. I went from being like total fan, one to meet aliens, channel them, become a contactee, that whole nine. I went from that to I don't want to come home from school in the afternoon because nobody's at home. Right. Um, I didn't want to be in the dark. And the experience actually changed me in, in the sense that when there's dark, I can feel darkness now. And that sounds weird to a lot of people. Uh, my wife, when me and my wife first started dating, I kind of, I didn't really tell her about my experience, but I told her, you know, I, I don't like to be in the dark. I don't like to sleep in the dark, anything like that. So if, it, it, if it's dark in the room, I have an issue with it. And so one night she was flipping through the channels on the uh, cable remote and there's a slight delay, which caused the TV to be dark. If you just try to flip through channels. Right. And I woke up out of a dead sleep and asked her what she was doing because I could just feel the darkness around me. And I, uh, now it's like that. Anytime I walk anywhere that's completely dark, I can feel it. Wow. And even if I'm asleep, I'll wake up out of a dead sleep because the dark, it, it just feels different now. It's not the same. That's interesting. Wow. You know, that kind of answers this question, but I also wanted to ask, have you felt any, or are you suspicious of any, um, I don't know, f- physical changes or anything like that? Cause I mean, a lot of people who have an experience like yours will find out later they have an implant or something crazy like that. Have you ever thought about that or thought about looking into that? Um, what's interesting is for a while, um, actually until maybe, I want to say about five, six years ago, mm-hmm. I used to get these little bumps on my ear. I used to think it was a bump on my ear, but it felt like it was something inside of my earlobe. Um, and it's usually on my right ear. And I would feel it, and it would feel like there was a little ball inside. Right. And I always thought that was kind of weird, but it would, it would only happen every now and then. And I, I, at the time, when it was going on, I didn't really think to, to check it out or anything like that. But the, the thought crossed my mind a couple of times, like, I wonder if this might be an implant or something. And then I didn't give it much thought after that. And then one day it would just be gone. Right. Now, I, I can't say I had any dreams that I can recall that were associated with this going on. I don't know where it went or when it came and all that. I didn't keep track of it. It was just kind of a fleeting thought. Um, but I, I, I don't think I was abducted or anything like that. But the whole experience took place in my room. And I don't think that I've been abducted or anything like that since then. I think more or less I I had a spiritual, say manifestation or harassment more so than anything. Yeah. 
All right. Well, very interesting. Do you think people that do channel these entities and sometimes they say that it's a positive experience, do you think that they're, you know, are they having some kind of Stockholm syndrome or, or do you really, do you think they actually feel a different presence or, you know, because there's a lot of people in the new age that have experiences and they say, you know, I felt pure love and all the, all I felt was the presence of love and things like that. What do you, what's your take on what's going on there? Um, I think some of it may be Stockholm syndrome. Uh, as you mentioned, um, I can't think of his name now. He, he did the books, uh, communion and, um, transformation, Whitley Strieber. Strieber, yeah. And he, he talked about how he was starting to more or less want to be in the presence of his captors, even though they were doing this torturous stuff to him. And I think with some people it's like that. And I think other people do have experiences that they genuinely think are good because if you, if you look at the whole experience of alien abduction or contacts or, you know, things of that nature, if they were consistently harassing and doing bad things to people all of the time, they would have nobody to go and preach their message that they're kind and loving and all right. that. That's a good stuff. point. So I do believe some people have genuinely good experiences with them. And that's basically to push the deception that they are something that they are not. Sure. And maybe it's, it's also possible that depending on the person too, right? I mean, if they have invited them in, so to speak, they might be nicer to them or, you know, if they know that they have a, you know, a, a Christian background or something like that, and they may try to shake them out of that or something, but let's tie this back just real quick to the sons of God. Now, do you think these entities, uh, well, first off, who, who do you think the sons of God are? Let's, let's sort of nail that down and then go back to what you, we were talking about before. Okay, cool. Um, well, basically, it, it was through this alien stuff that I ended up bumping into Chuck Missler's studies. My mom had ordered a bunch of his studies. And back in the 90s, uh, they, they still had cassette tapes. And I still had a cassette tape player. Now I have no clue where one is. But <laughs> we had boxes. And when I say boxes, I mean like little boxes of Chuck Missler and other stuff <laughs> yes. from Firefighters from Christ. Great comfort. Um, that's where I first was introduced to him at was through this. Uh, Chuck Smith and a bunch of other guys. And they sent these boxes and boxes of cassette tapes. It must have been about, I want to say anywhere between three and 500 tapes. I never counted. Oh. Um, it had every study from Genesis Holy on. moly. Yeah, and they, and they sent them free. Uh, Firefighters for Christ, all you had to do was write them or call them and ask, and they would just send you all of this stuff for free. And back then, it was just like, wow, this is like excellent because each tape was like an hour front and back total. And so we had all these tapes and I just would sit there in high school and just listen to these. And so eventually I got to the Genesis six tape and, and I listened to that one. And then I bumped into return of the Nephilim and the return of the Nephilim study was two cassette tapes, parts one and parts two. And when he started talking about alien abduction, everything he said was just kind of like ringing home. And then he associated it with the sons of God and everything just suddenly made sense because for the last couple of years, I, end of seventh grade, beginning of eighth grade, I had immersed myself into learning everything I could about aliens. And when he started to compare it with the Bible, it made perfect sense and it lined up exactly with what I knew from that perspective. And so I started doing my own research and I really started trying to dig into the Hebrew and 
uh, the Strong's Concordance and really looking at some of the history behind, you know, all of these teachings. And my own conclusion was that the sons of God in the Bible are fallen angels and not Sethites, not people, um, not anything like that. Like most people are taught in church, they're fallen angels. Right. And, and I've come to similar conclusions. And, you know, of course, Chuck Missler was a big deal. L.A. Marzulli was a big one for me as well. But uh, let's actually look at the, the Sethite view real quick, because, you know, you have a book called The Lines of Seth, A Brief History of Heresy. Where does that idea come from? And why is it something that is taught in the seminary schools? Well, the Sethite view is a comfortable view. Um, to me, the Sethite view is for people who don't want to actually do any real kind of study, any real kind of research. And so they have to come up with this view to really dance around the subject. And when this, when this view started taking, I guess, hold, it was early 100 AD around there. Um, and what they taught was, it was called Tanaic Doctrine. And that's basically a doctrine that means repeat what you hear, and it doesn't matter if you've read it or not. This is just a, a nutshell definition. Um, and so the Tanaic doctrine started to spread. And so around the third century, Sextus Julius Africanus really started to push the Sethite view heavy. So this is a newer view. The original view was that the sons of God were angels. Um, and so it wasn't until this new view came around that, hey, these were actually Sethites um, that they started to push it. And then Thomas Aquinas, um, he... Um, he picked up the view as well. And then the Catholic church started to teach that the um, angel view was heresy and it, it, it became illegal to teach it under penalty of death. And so less people started to talk about it because death is a huge threat to a lot of people. They're like, okay, we just rather not talk about what's going on in Genesis than to get killed for it because it's not a salvational issue. And so this theory takes hold and so slowly it progresses and makes its way into the modern church. And unfortunately people that sit in church, well, not everybody, but a lot of people that sit in church, they just believe what the pastor tells them because it, it goes back to that Tanaic doctrine. They don't follow up on the pastor. They don't question the pastor. They don't go question what these teachings are. And for a long time, we sat in a church that was like that. And I always, tell people this story because to me it's funny now that I look back on it, but at the end of every sermon, the pastor at the church, he had this pretty much, you could verbatim know what he was going to say word for word because he, he closed church the same way every time. And he basically was getting to the point that we're going to be raptured and that we're going to have our resurrection bodies and we're going to become like the angels. And then he said, angels are sexless. And he had a huge smile on his face like, he wanted to be a sexless being <laughs> so I, I just thought it was so funny and then in the same sentence he would say angels are hermaphrodites and I'm like wait hermaphrodites are sexless they have both parts so to me it was just a funny contradiction that he would even put those two things sexless and hermaphrodite in the same sentence it seems a little so, confused very much so and <laughs> yeah and people listen to that every Sunday and nobody ever questioned him on it ever hmm so I think that's part of the reason that the, the Sethite doctrine is so big right now. You know, there's other arguments too with, with the Sethite view, like Genesis 4.26, where it says, well, I don't remember exactly off the top of my head, but I, I think what the, the point was, they start calling upon the name of the Lord, 
And then they use a passage from Luke that says anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is is saved. And so they say, oh, there you go. There are your, you know, once, you know, Seth's line came into being, then there you have it. They called upon the name of the Lord and they were saved. Uh, But I think it was actually Chuck Missler that pointed out that word there, um, which I think is chalal or kalal in the Hebrew. Yeah. It actually could, yeah, it could actually mean uh, profane. Oh, yeah, here it is. Enos, uh, Seth's son, Enos, in Genesis chapter 5. Right, right. Yeah, so so I think, you know, there's they try to use these things and, and sort of try to piece together logically. But, you know, I think the biggest point, as far as I'm concerned, is like, when you actually look at Genesis 6, don't even look at the Hebrew or anything like that, it says, you know, there's a distinction between sons of God and daughters of men. If it was any other way, I think it would tell us, right? I mean, Adam had a son, it was a man, that sort of thing. I mean, it's a man, 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 all the way down, and then all of a sudden, sons of God, daughters of men. So, what's another, just pointing at scripture that you found that's sort of a nail in the coffin for the Sethite view? Job 38. In Job 38, we find the sons of God watching the creation. Mm. Now, when you when you look at that, people weren't created till day six, which means they weren't created until after earth was already created and other things were established and put in place, such as light and, and trees and plants and all that. Right. So if the sons of God are human, how are they watching the creation of earth? That's one, one thing right there. Um, even if we leave out Job's chap- Job chapter one and two, where the sons of God present themselves before the Lord and Satan is among them. Even if we leave that out, we have Daniel chapter three, where Nebuchadnezzar refers to the fourth man in the fire as a son of God. Now, King James says the Son of God. Some of the other versions say a Son of God. It's actually a, a, the the um, Aramaic used there is actually an article, um, like a and or the. It, it can be either one. It could be a definitive such as the, or it can be a general such as a. So it's really up to how wow. you interpret it. So he anyway, actually thought as, it was a fallen angel in the fire. Well, no, it wasn't a fallen angel. Well, but because that's all what the angels were called sons of God. Right. Oh, okay. Okay. And he, he even says that later on, as you read the chapter, it says, God sent his angel to protect you. I'm paraphrasing. Got it. He says that after he calls this a son of God, he says, God sent his angel. He specifically refers to the guy in the fire as an angel after calling him a son of God. I think those are the two biggest pieces of evidence that angels were referred to as sons of God and not people. Um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting, actually, because, I mean, we talk about the sons of God and the Nephilim quite a bit on the show. And, you know, I've never heard anybody reference either of those scriptures, at least on the air. Yeah, they're, they're I would say, kind of obscure scriptures because they don't go into great detail. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people just kind of miss them. And another piece from the New Testament, and I like to give this to people who always say, well, the New Testament says this. They always dance around this scripture. And I don't know if it's on purpose or because they don't really realize it there, but it's in John chapter one, verse 12. It says, but as many as received him to them, gave he power to become sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. Now, the thing is, this is talking about Christ. Christ's name was never revealed in the old Testament. And so it wasn't until Christ came and revealed his name that we had the power to believe in his name. And so those people have the power to become sons of God. So that means prior to this, people did not have the power to be called sons of God. Mm, so that good means point. somebody else had to have, somebody else had to be called sons of God. And in the Bible, we only find that that is Adam and the angels. Right. Mm. So that's another, 
a clue from the New Testament. And then I think one of the biggest clues is if you look up the Jewish hierarchy of angels, right there in the Jewish ranks of angels, one of the ranks of angels is called the B'nai Elohim. The same phrase <laughs> that's used in Genesis chapter 6, the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God. There you go. And that's an actual rank of angels. And so to me, that proves the point, because if anybody knows Jewish culture, I would assume it's the Jewish people. Right. Well, um, first off, Basil, we have mentioned Job 38.7. Um, no. in the past, but, uh, no, no one, I, just, I don't pay attention. <laughs> I just sort of black out. Uh, yeah. I guess when I show. talk, you just sort of, you put the blinders on. I just go on Craigslist. <laughs> look, look for at, scooters. Look at scooters. Um, I haven't heard the Daniel verse, you know, reference in that way, but I think it's first Corinthians eleven ten. Also, and we, we talked to Dr. Michael Heiser about this too, uh, where, you know, basically says that, you know, it's talking about women and putting on a head covering, and it says just randomly, Paul drops in there, you know, because of the angels. <laughs> There's no other explanation. It's just there. And, you know, you look, I, I've tried to look for different commentaries on it. And I mean, there's really no one that addresses that. Everyone skips over it. So there, there's a lot of stuff. I think there's a lot of little things in the Bible that really point to this idea. But I actually do uh, have some commentary on that in my uh, book, uh, As the Days of Noah Were. And uh, it's it's a very obscure commentary. Actually, uh, I had to find it. I was trying to find a reference uh, for you now because I think, as you mentioned, I think that's a very interesting point that just Paul just suddenly comes out of nowhere and talks about you know because of the angels, this why women should cover their head. Right. But it's a it's a Middle Eastern tradition though that the angels were um, I guess say led astray or attracted. Uh, to women's hair, which is part of the reason that they fail. Right, right. Yeah, that that was what Dr. Michael Heiser brought up, was that, yeah, in the Middle East, uh, their hair was, uh, you know, that had something to do with um, their ability to procreate, if you will. And so that's why, you know, that's why Paul mentioned it there. But uh, what about the Nephilim? Now, our paradigm here is that the sons of God, they, they mated with the daughters of men, and they had progeny, and they were giants, and they were called the Nephilim. What uh, what is your conclusion and uh, your view of the Nephilim? Um, I think the Nephilim are an interesting subject because if you if you look at the progression of the word again, people that want to dance around the subject they they come up with this um, they come up with all these strange ideas and they want to say well the Nephilim could have been this or that. Well, all you have to do is look at the history of what people thought the Nephilim were. Again, up until about the first century when when Tanaic doctrine started to really take root. People believe that the Nephilim were half-human, half-angel hybrids. Nobody ever said, well, these weren't really hybrids. I mean, that was the prevailing belief, and that was what was taught. Um, if you look at the context of the sentence, this is all one sentence. The Nephilim don't appear until the sons of God start taking the daughters of men. And one of my favorite translations um, for this specific area of verses, it comes from the Etzhaim, the Torah and commentary. It's a um, Hebrew the English Torah. It's written from right to left. It opens what we would call backwards. And you see all the Hebrew there. And this commentary was put together by a bunch of different Jewish organizations. And the reading of it is interesting how they translate it. It says, when men began to increase on the earth and daughters were born to them, the divine beings saw how beautiful the daughters of men were and took wives from among those that pleased them. The Lord said, my breath shall not abide in man forever, since he to his flesh. Let the days be allowed him 120 years. It was then, and later too, that the Nephilim appeared on the earth, 
when the divine beings cohabited with the daughters of men who bore them offspring. They were the heroes of old and men of renown. And so that, to me, that translation is very interesting. Yeah. They, they directly link the Nephilim to the sons of God or the divine beings coming down, having sex with the daughters of men. So I, I think the Nephilim are hybrid. So, okay, one of the biggest things, and I guess this is jumping a little bit back to the sons of God, uh, but in reference to the Nephilim, you know, the biggest refute that people bring up is, is I guess, sort of what your pastor said there. Angels are sexless. You know, the, go look at Luke. Uh, there's passages that talk about how in heaven we won't be married and, and, you know, not be given in marriage. What's your answer to the skeptic of uh, who brings up that passage? That topic is actually very easy to deal with because that involves a lot of taking out of context to even get the angels or sexless out of that, that path. So the first issue we have here is this is not a question about people in general. When the Pharisees and Sadducees approached Jesus, they specifically gave him an example of a woman who had been married to seven brothers over and over again. The one died and she married the next and so on and so on. This was a very specific example. This wasn't, oh, what happens to believers after they die? What happens to the person who has been married over and over and over again? Jesus says they are like the angels in heaven. He says in heaven specifically, they are neither, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, that's the first part of that. This was a specific question addressing a specific situation. Then Jesus says they are like the angels in heaven. Well, we know Satan and his angels are no longer in heaven. So those rules don't apply to them. He says that they don't marry and aren't given in marriage. That says nothing about sexual reproduction. People can have sex whether they're married or not. They can have children whether they're married or not. Animals aren't required to have uh, marriage to have sex or mate or anything like that. And the other assumption is that angels are bound by the same laws as humans. There's nothing in the Bible that says God gave the same laws to angels as us. We don't even know if angels have sex. We don't know if they procreate. We don't know really much about angels as far as how so many angels came to exist. It doesn't tell us. It doesn't even talk about the creation of angels. They're just there. And so people make all of these assumptions based on the laws that God gave to humanity, which can't be applied across the board. They can't even be applied to earthly things such as the insect world or the animal world. So to assume that the laws that God gave to man also apply to the spiritual world as a whole, to me, is, is really a huge assumption. Um, so in that capacity, it's easy to deal with. And again, the verse doesn't speak of gender at all whatsoever. Not being married to somebody does not stop you from having a kid with somebody. It's still biologically possible. Right. So to me, that verse is easy to deal with. Yeah, and I think the main point also that you pointed out was that it says for in the resurrection, right? It's talking about the resurrection of the, of humanity, not, you know, not angels per se. So yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's a good point there. You know, how important is it to understand this paradigm? You know, we, we, on this show, we talk about it a lot. And, and I think most of our audience is pretty well versed in, in most of the things we've talked about so far, but you know, the, the challenge that it seems all of us have is to bring this discussion to the forefront of the church and, um, you know, just talk about it because it's right there. It's such an important part of the scriptures. I believe that the Nephilim paradigm can really reshape our understanding of the Old Testament 
uh, overall, you know, obviously you got numbers 1333 that talks about the Nephilim were there and yeah, it's a bad report, but I don't think that means they were lying about the giants. Um, and it says they're the descendants of Anak, uh, Anak who came from the Nephilim. And then you look up Anak and you know, they're all over the place. And you know, a lot of the tribes that God told Israel to go after, it seemed like they were giants or giant tribes. So, you know, I, I think this idea of genocide and all the stuff the skeptics and atheists bring up, you know, it can be totally demolished if you really apply the, the Nephilim paradigm. But first off, why do you think the church, uh, and I guess you've addressed this a little bit, but why do you think the church ignores it? And how should we approach this subject so that more people will start to look into it? Well, uh, again, I think the church ignores it because of lack of research. Too many people just listen to what they're told and they don't actually go research for themselves. Everybody that I've ever met that bothered to do any real research on the subject has come to the same conclusion, that these were fallen angels and these were hybrids on the earth. People that don't do any research, they just repeat the same arguments over and over again while avoiding certain parts of Scripture. They avoid Daniel 3. They avoid Job. Um, actually, I've talked to a lot of people who, who held the Sethite theory, and they didn't even know the verses in Job were there um, because that's not what they were taught. And, you know, I, I asked them the question, okay, if people were created on this day, who were the sons of God here? Why is Satan among the sons of God when they come to present themselves to God? Why is he among them? And, and these are questions that they have trouble with. Uh, when I bring up the, the um, John 1.12, you know, how did people become the sons of God before they could believe on the name of Christ? How is this possible? And I think that uh, I think that once you understand what happened in Genesis six, that it was an attempt to destroy the human race through biological warfare, then the rest of the Old Testament starts to fall into place. You understand why Sodom and Gomorrah aligned themselves with the Nephilim tribes that were being slaughtered. You understand why Abraham aligned himself with three Nephilim to go rescue Lot. You understand why David has to kill Goliath and why his men eventually kill Goliath's four brothers. You understand why the promised land has Nephilim all over them. You mm -hmm. understand the role of the Amorites in the, in the Old Testament, Og, uh, Sihon, the Anakim, all these guys you start to understand where they come from, why they were feared, and why it was absolutely necessary to wipe all of them off of the map in order to keep them from contaminating the human race to the point it was in Noah's day. And I also believe that it is foundational in understanding the current craze with UFOs and alien abductions. Because if you don't understand Genesis 6, alien abduction seems just like another crazy myth to you. But when right. you understand the events in Genesis 6, you can understand pagan world history as well, because now you understand why they believe that the gods would come down among them. Now you understand why they believe the gods had sex with human women, why the gods would deceive them, why the gods seemed evil a lot of the times, even though they were worshipped. It, it really ties everything together, both inside of the Bible and outside of the Bible and in the modern day. Right. Well, that's a, that's a good place to bump in here and and talk a little bit about what you think the role of the Nephilim are in the modern day, you know, as we are now. You have a book, As the Days of Noah Were, The Sons of God and the Coming Apocalypse. So you obviously have some sort of uh, uh, opinion on that. Go a little bit deeper into that. I think 
Now, uh, some people disagree. They say, you know, they don't see enough time for the genetic manipulation. They don't see enough time for the hybrid scenario to come into play. Um, and I, I use Daniel 2.43. And it says, Where, And whereas thou saw the iron mixed with the miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. Um, that's an odd reference because in order to mingle with the seed of men, you have to be something other than men, which means they is something completely different. Mm. Um, people have come up with all kinds of crazy explanations to me. Um, the cloning one to me is uh, one of the flimsiest arguments because even when you get into cloning, if you understand how cloning works, it's not like you see in the movies. They're not taking some shell of a body and doing all this weird stuff with it. They're not growing something from scratch super fast. The way cloning works is you have a real human egg, you have a real human sperm, and the, the genetics are manipulated so that the clone looks like an individual. It's still a person. Even though it's a clone person, it's still a person. Um, so the clone scenario doesn't fit. They have to be something other than the seed of men because clones still come from people, egg and sperm. Um, so when you, when you look at the scenario, that sounds kind of odd. It says that they shall not cleave to one another even as iron is not mixed with clay. And the cleaving is, it means adhere or bond to, or um, some people say it, it means they won't marry like they did in the days of Noah. However, they will still procreate and create offspring. Uh, the mingle right there means mixing or blending. And that right there to me is, is very interesting. Um, when you go to jump to Jesus' words in Matthew 24, when he says, as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For in those days they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, and did not until the flood came and took them all away. Now, what's interesting is when I ask people, who are they? Who are they that were eating, drinking, mingling, and marrying? Right. And most people say, well, people. Well, if you look at what Jesus said, Jesus, in verse 36, mentions people and angels. Right. He mentions people and angels not knowing the time. And he says, as the days of Noah were, and he says they. So the only way to find who they are is to go back a few verses and find the subject, which would be angels and people, since that's who he mentioned, or to go to Noah's time and look at who was marrying and giving in marriage in Noah's time. And again, you have angels and people. So you have angels and people confirmed at least twice in the Bible in connection with the last days, marrying and giving in marriage. And it gets even more interesting um, when you consider that alien abductions have been reported for as long as human history, if you really think about how long human history has been, people have been reporting beings from the sky abducting them. So in this end time scenario, we have what people believe are aliens abducting people and hybrid offspring are being reported. And many people deny this or they say, oh, I haven't heard of that. And to me, if anybody says they haven't heard of uh, alien human hybrid, <laughs> Uh, they they aren't really serious about researching the stuff. Truly, though, you, pop up everywhere. You know, it's interesting. And I was watching what was it? You know, I hate to give free advertising here, but um, storage wars, not storage wars. It's like shipping wars or something. Some <laughs> some dumb realistic reality, reality show shift. where they uh, I don't know ship things. And this one guy was shipping a giant safe. And inside was an alien implant that they had taken out of him. 
supposedly. And so the guy got paid like a bunch of money to ship this giant safe with an alien implant in it. And the guy would not leave the safe alone. Like the guy who owned it, he wanted to travel with it and do everything. And he was talking about right there on national television, how he has like 20 alien offspring. He had like this painting in his house of him and like standing there, like in his underwear with like all of his alien offspring like around him. Like it was so bizarre, but but it was really, really interesting. My dad like called me over. He's like, are you seeing this? I'm like, yep. Well, I guess it's just where we are now. And so, yeah, it's out there, man. And of, of course they're making like tons of jokes about the guy, but, uh, oh, and oh, he, yeah. had his, he had his hypnotherapist there with him. Oh, that's always good. Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, Dante Daniel 243, and I was talking with Ellie Marzulli a few days ago on Acceleration Radio, and I actually pointed that verse out as well. And, you know, another topic we talk about quite a bit is transhumanism. And uh, it's interesting because I, I pointed out an article that came out back in 2011 where uh, the title of the article is Scientists Create Lifelike Cells Out of Metal. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and, and it's this whole idea of like, okay, if, if, <laughs> if they can create lifelike cells or you know you know they haven't actually defined it life yet but if they're moving in that direction you know is it possible that these fallen angels can inhabit these different uh you know transhumans or effectively these these sort of and i call them spacesuits because you know really they're they're sort of like biological spacesuits you know if you're talking about machine crossed over with you know biology and and all this stuff going on what do you think, as far as the sons of God and these fallen angels, do you think that they're, they have the power to simply just come in and out of physicality? Or do you think that they're going to uh, inhabit some sort of biological, I don't know, for lack of a better term, I, I use spacesuit, but some sort of, some, some way to physically manifest uh, in, a, in a real way? Well, I, I differentiate between fallen angels and demons. And in the Bible, every time we see angels, they have the ability to manifest a body. When Satan took Jesus up to the mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, he had a body. When we see the angels in the Old Testament appear, they eat, they fight, they do all kinds of things, they have sex, they take people, um, they have a body. There are people who believe that for whatever reason, when the fallen angels fell, that they were stripped of their powers, they were stripped of this, stripped of that. The Bible does not say that at all. And again, that's Tanaic doctrine. Believe what you hear. Um, the Bible does not teach that they were stripped of their power. So I believe, personally believe the fallen angels can manifest. Now, when it comes to demons, every time we see them, they are inhabiting either people or animals. We see them inhabit the pigs. So I assume that they can mm. inha inhabit other animals other than just the pigs and people. Um, and what's interesting is the, the biological suit theory. As I actually heard this years ago, just in passing, that the grays seem to be more of a biological suit that has a, a something inside of it, like a consciousness. Right. Yeah. Now, one of my favorite shows of all time is Stargate, SG-1. One of my favorite sci-fi shows, because there was a lot of research that went into that, and I don't know how many Christians watched it or do watch it, but that, to me, is a show that if you watch it and you really understand the, what was going on behind mythology, they interwove the story so intricately that 
you don't catch a lot of it, I, I guess I want to say. The Gould, who were the, the Gould, who were the main enemy. Um, do you guys watch Stargate at all? Yeah, I've watched it. And actually, it was the, the movie that came out, you know, way back when I was like 12 or 13 that like really got me into pyramids and right. uh, you yeah. know, e- ancient Egypt and all this crazy stuff. So yeah, and yeah I, we're definitely familiar. And I know for a fact, a lot of our listeners do. What up, Stargate fans? Right. So yeah, the, the Gould, they, they made people's eyes glow. They made them talk in multiple voices, almost like a person possessed by a demon. And so it's them that they say, okay, these guys were played, pretended to be Egyptian gods and goddesses and Greek gods and goddesses. And when they go to one of the Christian worlds, you find out that people refer to them as demons. And so they, they thought these, these were demons inhabiting the bodies. And I know that wasn't their intent to say that, hey, these are dem- demons. They were more saying, oh, these are extraterrestrials that people thought were demons. Right. But I thought it was very interesting. But anyway, when they bring in the Asgard, what we would call alien graves, the concept behind the Asgard was that the bodies we saw as the graves were not what they actually looked like. Those were biological suits that they created in order to house a consciousness in order to make them immortal. And that concept to me just kind of blew my mind at the time when Stargate was still running, that the Greys were a, basically a spirit inside of a biologically created suit right. that allowed them to live and continue this world. And they couldn't reproduce because they had no, no means of sexual reproduction. It was just a means for them to move around in our, in our world. So I, I do believe that there may be something to that, not solely based on Stargate, but just in general, <laughs> because the uh, Nephilim, the fallen Nephilim, once they die, they become the demons, and they need a body to move around. So they either possess people or animals, and I believe biological suits, it's possible that biological suits were created to allow them to move in and out without having to possess a person or an animal. Right, and I think you just tapped on what I was going to ask you about, was that uh, I, I believe it's the book of Jasher, <clears throat> excuse me, that talks about how the the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim are the modern day demons. Uh, is that where you're at with uh, who the demons are? Well, I know Noah and Enoch talk about it. Um, I don't recall reading it in Jasher. I'm sorry, uh, Noah talks about it in Enoch, and then there's also Jubilees that talks about it. Actually, um, I think I think you're right. I think it was Jubilees. I'm sorry, that was my mistake. Yeah, and in Deuteronomy. 3217, I want to make sure I'm getting that right. Um, I believe it's Deuteronomy 3217, where um, Moses, um, I'm trying to look it up right now to make sure I have that reference right. But Moses talks about um, demons, and he calls them new. And I, I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, verse. Yes, 3217, he says, They sacrificed unto devils, which is, uh, he actually says, the shed. And in my book, Days of Noah, I, I cover the Shidu, which was a, a entity worshipped all around the Middle East that was a hybrid creature. It was part human, part ox, had wings like a, a bird, um, and it just was a really weird creature. Anyway, he said they sacrificed unto the Shid, or demons, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up whom your fathers feared not. And I, I found this to be very interesting because he says this was not something that they feared in the past. This is something new right. that came newly up. And I think there was a lot of stuff going on in the past that we had no clue about. 
And I think now we're really starting, those that are paying attention are really starting to understand what was going on in the past and that the stuff of mythology may not be myths and legends. And this is something I tell people all the time. I, I talk about this in Bible study. I teach Bible studies at Wednesday, on Wednesday nights at church. And I, I just bring this stuff up. I don't care who's sitting in the crowd. I bring <laughs> this stuff move. up all the time. And I, I say, look, the only place weird stuff like hybridization comes up is in ancient history and the stories of mythology and modern-day science. Yep. I was like, so if you look at it like that, what's the difference between them saying a bull-human hybrid exists and BBC saying, hey, we're trying to create a bull-human hybrid? Right. So either they made all that stuff up back then just on the chance that we're doing it now or science is modeling everything that they're doing right now off of the mythology back then. Either way it goes, you should pay attention to mythology because that's pointing to where we're headed. Yeah, right. Amen. Well, um, you know, you got this new book coming out, or is out, Silent Screamers, Brook One, The Rise of Bacchus. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, Silent Screamers, actually, um, there's, there's a little bit of a backstory to it. Okay. Um, in high school, I started writing this book called The Fall. And the first book was called The Fall Rise of Lucifer. And I'm still actually kind of working on a lot of it because the, the project is so massive in my head that I just never finished it. And so I said, okay, I want to take this same concept, but I want to look at it from a human perspective. What would humans do? The, the fall is from a completely angelic perspective. It breaks down angel culture. They have their own language. I mean, it's like a, like a, really like a huge Star Wars slash Star Trek type endeavor with the fall. That's why it's so big. So I wanted to do something on a smaller scale and look at it from a human perspective. I say, okay, if, if aliens invaded and there was all this weird stuff going on, how would humans handle it? And so that's what Silent Screamers is about. Who would be the heroes? Who would be the, the villains? Who would, who would survive? Who would die? Um, Silent Screamers takes a 16-year-old kid who is excited about Earth interacting with alien beings and puts him into a situation to where the world as he knows it is flipped upside down. He goes from normal 16-year-old kid having an argument with his father that day before to having to rescue his father from an alien ship the following day because his choices are hide and stay safe and allow your father to potentially die or go out and look for your father and not necessarily become a hero, but put yourself in a position to where you're no longer, or you no longer have that safety net. Right. And so he's forced into that situation. He's forced to become a man overnight, really. And so as you, as you look through this, the, the characters become more complex. Um, he becomes a hero. He's just the average kid who becomes a hero. Um, there's, there's different kinds of things he has to face. Uh, satyrs is one of the things that he ends up facing in the book. Mm. Um, you end up with a, I, I was going to go with hybrids that are familiar to people, but one of the hybrids that I created that I thought was interesting was a rhinoceros. It's the size of a rhinoceros, but it's mixed with lions, so it's a, it's a carnivore. Uh, it's a huge carnivore that's super fast. That's terrifying. So, <laughs> yeah, these are the things that he has to deal with now in this new world and I put him right in the middle of Las Vegas since I know Las Vegas I grew up here my whole life and so all of this takes place in Las Vegas 
And it goes from being, you know, gambling, tourist capital, and to center of an alien invasion full of hybrids and satyrs and, and different things he has to overcome. So right. that's what Silent Screaming is about. He even ends up encountering a few giants, um, and they, they learn how to deal with those. And Bacchus um, is his, his main enemy throughout the first book and part of the second book. Um, and Bacchus, he arrives in his, his ship, and from the get-go, he has nothing but evil planned for people, and they're forced underground, and they're forced to survive. So there is a survivalist-slash-prepper element to the entire story, in addition to having cool military weapons and all this other stuff that's going on. So I kind of took um, the modern-day scenario, mixed right. it with the apocalyptic stuff, added in some um, survivalist stuff, and a little bit of Bible prophecy, some mythology, and came up with Silent Screamers. That's cool, man. You know, it's interesting because as fictional as it may be and, you know, may sound, it's it's kind of a uh, throw to what may, you know, I don't know, possibly unfold in the future. And especially for, you know, a kid, the kid kind of sounds like, uh, you know, how he gets into the UFOs and stuff kind of sounds like it comes from your own experiences there. But who knows? Maybe. Uh, yeah, every every character that I created, um, I wouldn't say it's based around me, but in a sense it is since I'm creating every character. I right. try to look at the situation and say, okay, given this scenario, how would I react if I was his father? How would I react if I was his son? Or, you know, and put myself personally in the situation right. to write each character and say, okay, I, like in the, I don't want to talk too much about the second one. I'll say this. The first one is free. For anybody who wants to read it, you can go to silentscreamers.net. You can download the PDF for free. If you don't like to read PDFs, it's optional. I have it in paperback. It's already published in paperback and on Kindle. So it's really up to you how you want to get it, but it's 100% free if you want to read it that way. Um, in the second book, I, I explore with a lot more scenarios. I'm working on the second book now. Um, because I want the I want the series to relate. I want a lot of people to be able to relate to the series. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a character that I introduce in the second series, and I'm kind of giving people a little bit of a, a sneak peek for those that have already read the book. Um, there's a character that gets introduced in the second series, and he's not the average character. He is somebody that catches you completely off guard, and he can manipulate time, his own mm-hmm. time. Not time in general, but he he went through a government psyops program, and they taught him how to use adrenaline to slow down time, almost like unwanted. Right. But this is on a whole nother level, and he is a person that specifically hunts werewolves hmm. because they're super fast. And they're in the second book. I introduced werewolves. They are a genetic experiment, part human, part wolf. They're super fast, super intelligent. And he's the government's answer to killing them off. He's one of, one of a few. And he can slow down his own time by using his adrenaline to make his reactions faster so that they could even the odds in the playing field. That's cool how uh, you, know, you can take sort of influences from what's going on in the scientific uh, community and also biblical prophecy and extra biblical texts and kind of what we know in the theories with the Nephilim and the UFOs and everything. And, you know, kind of pair it with your uh, love of graphic novels and comic books and, you know, make something that could be truly relevant like that. 
Yeah, and, and I wanted to reach a, bro- a broader audi- audience with Silent Screamers um, because I know writing Christian research books like Days of Noah, Beyond Flesh and Blood, that appeals to a certain type of person. And fiction appeals to a lot of other people as well. Right. And so I kind of wanted to take my research and put it in a fiction medium and make it a way that more people can grab it, even if they're not Christian. And as, as part of this, I actually, when I published this, I just published under Dante Fortson. I took the minister part off because I want people who are not necessarily Christian to want to pick it up. Right. Because usually when, they, when they're not Christian, they see the word minister or pastor or, you know, words like that. Yeah. And those are triggers that make them say, okay, this is a religious book. I don't even want to read it. Yeah. But if I can at least get their foot in the door, I can grab their attention. Mm-hmm. And as the character grows spiritually, hopefully people will see that they can relate to this character and spiritual growth because uh, my, my character is an atheist. He's mm. the hero of the story. He's an atheist. Mm, interesting. Um, so I, I took a different route and he remains an atheist until I'm not going to tell you when, but he, he is slowly putting the pieces together. He does not have a conversion in book one. And I can tell you this, he does not have a conversion in book two. However, he is being pushed toward the direction of the inevitable and learning the truth behind everything that is going on. Right, right. Now, would you say that this uh, book is geared towards or appeals more to a younger crowd or maybe just young at heart? Or, you know, is it really for everybody to latch on to? This book is not for children. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'll say that. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of blood in it. Mm -hmm. Um, There is sex in it. There is bad language in it because I wanted to, again, I wanted to look at something realistic, even though I I didn't want to get pigeonholed into, oh, this is Christian fiction. So you're going to have the corny stuff. I want to know how real people react because I read a lot of Christian fiction. And to me, like some of the reactions are not real. Like nobody gets attacked by a lion rhinoceros hybrid and says, oh, darn it. Nobody does that. So (laughs) I wanted to take real stuff and put, stuff in the situation so there is bad language when it's necessary i don't i don't you know just go overly use it um but in crazy situations like that yes um again there's a lot of blood um so it's a violent book i don't suggest it for anybody under the age of i'd say 14 or 15 Mm. um this might appeal to young adults and it'll definitely appeal to older people i've gotten a lot of good reviews from people over the age of 20 that like the book um because I, I, I didn't want to go uh, cheesy fiction. I wanted to go real, as close to real as possible. Watch out, Basil. It's a linoceros. Holy, ah! holy shnikes. Holy shnikes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you, um, just, just real quick. I mean, I understand the, the perspective there of like using blood and all this stuff. And I'm sure you're going to get this at some point, And maybe you have already. You know, people that are Christian who may know your work from before they may come out and say, Dante, what are you doing? You know, you're using profanity. You're, you're, you know, there's a lot of violence in this, this story. You know, what do you say to that, you know, directly to someone that may ask you that question? I tell them to read the book of revelation yeah. In revelation. There's a point where the blood comes up to the horse's bridles 
I mean, if that's not bloody, <laughs> I mean, and people are dying off all through Revelation. And if you look at if if an invasion on this scale that I present in the book was to happen, people are going to die. Yeah. If if hybrids are being released for the sole purpose of hunting down and killing people, there's going to be blood. There's there's no way people are running around with guns and knives and fighting and there's no blood. It, it, to me, that's not realistic. And if you want to make an honest Christian book, I mean, somebody has to die. All through the Bible, people die from Genesis. We start out in Genesis, we get to chapter 6, and the world is wiped out. Like, everybody dies, except for eight people. Right. And that's only six chapters into the book, and you get all the way to Revelation. People die all throughout the Bible. 187,000, I think, or 180,000 Assyrians are wiped out by an angel. You have Samson wiping out people everywhere. You have Abraham wiping out people. I mean, people are getting wiped out all through the Bible. That is a bloody book. Um, so to me, I don't see any conflict of interest there by making a, a violent book about the end times um, and what people would go through to survive and what they would have to do to make it day by day. Sure, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, Bacchus, just touching on that real quick, it, it, that's the, uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, is similar to uh, Dionysus. Uh, from yeah. Greek mythology, and if I'm not mistaken, it has something to do with uh, he has something to do with wine and wine making. Do you create, you know, do you make that connection with real life mythology and and uh, you know, is essentially is Dionysus, you know, this hybrid being that came from th that same being from ancient mythology? Do you tie it in and weave in? I guess the question is how 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 much of the characters or these, you know, these enemies, if you will, in the story come from actual mythology and how much of an overlap is there, you know, with, with actual reality? Well, the, all the characters, except for the people, all the characters, uh, the enemies, the satyrs, the um, Bacchus, um, the werewolves, all of that stuff comes from the different mythologies. And, I developed their personalities around those in the in mythologies. Like they're, they're, when they first encountered the satyrs, the satyrs have caught humans and are preparing to rape the women, just like we see in the satyr mythology. And that's one of the encounters that will probably like, like throw people off. Like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Um, that is from mythology. Bacchus, um, he is the Bacchus from mythology. Uh, he, he enjoys to eat, he enjoys to drink, he enjoys having sex. In fact, the, the uh, prologue opens up, and the prologue is a sex scene between Bacchus and a human woman. And you find uh, out yeah. why later. <laughs> but the whole, the whole premise is I wanted to present this in a way that made people really go back and look at the, mytho uh, the, the mythology. And even the character, the main character, David, he doesn't only have a spiritual growth throughout the book, he has a growth of knowledge because they're trying to find a way to kill Bacchus. And in order to do that, they have to go back through history and research and learn about Bacchus and what he was about. Mm. And so because the satyrs are similar to, they have a similar agenda. The satyrs are all about drinking and sex and partying and dancing. And you see that when, when the satyrs, you know, nighttime, they build the campfire, they dance, they sing. And all they do is, you know, they want to party, drink, and have sex. And so I associate them with Bacchus. I actually make them Bacchus's minions in the book. Um, and Bacchus, in book two, Bacchus goes into more detail 
and and we get a little bit more of an origin story about him. We get origin stories about the hybrids and what was really going on without giving away the the truth behind everything because his whole thing is he wants to be perceived as an alien. That's his intent. Right. He wants people to believe these are aliens. And so I I believe I accomplished that in the second book without giving anything away to those who aren't familiar with the subject. But again, my my goal with the entire series is to grab people that may not necessarily be Christian, toss them into this world, and then start to show them things that, hey, this is what was going on, and this is how it may tie into a modern-day scenario. Sure. And this, at the end, I want to show them, hey, this is what was really behind all that. It was a big deception. Sure. And, you know, that that other character, just touching real quick on this new character, the unexpected character in your second book, I got into a discussion with Rob Skiba, who you're going to be talking to pretty soon here, uh, the other day. And, you know, we were talking about how, you know, just reality itself, you know, I, I don't know if you've done video editing, Dante, but like, you, yeah, you know, a little bit. yeah, so, you know, you, ha- you have a, a little cursor, right? And you can scroll through the video and it's, you can go frame by frame by frame. Well, Rob was talking about mm-hmm. how this reality could actually be similar in that, you know, we're just sort of living in a, a very high frame rate, you know, and so it gets into all kinds of crazy, you know, you, you, you can ask him about it and we can get, you guys can get into some interesting discussion there, but it's cool, man. I, I'm really excited for you and I'm, I'm hoping that uh, you reach a lot of people with the book and do you have any plans or anything to make it into a, a movie or anything like that? Um, we actually started shooting um, a while back, but what was crazy is the, the main girl who played Sarah, Sarah's in the book, um, she actually, I don't know what happened, but she ended up getting like second degree burns, uh, like outside of the filming. Wow. Uh, she was doing something in her personal life and ended up getting second degree burns. And so it, it got postponed while she was going through her healing. I think she had a few third degree burns too. So a lot of it got postponed. And so it just kind of, we lost the momentum. I didn't pick it back up. Uh, but last night, I actually um, met Maxwell Alexander Drake. Um, he is a fiction author, a science fiction author, um, and he does work with Sony and some other stuff. We, we went to one of his, a friend of mine, Darren Orr, who just wrote a book called Terran War. Me and him went to his lecture about character creation uh, because this is my first venture into fiction. Um, I guess you say my first released venture into fiction. And so we just kind of went and talked to him. And afterwards, uh, me, him, and uh, Baron talked, and he invited us out to eat. And one of the guys that he invited us out to eat with um, is, is into video games, like uh, writing video games, things like that. So we're talking now. We just started talking yesterday, so it's super premature. But there's a possibility that it may develop into some kind of game, Sweet. Um, depending on how the conversation goes, because he sounded very interested in the idea. And if if anything, he can at least point me in the right direction to go to start on the development process. But I would love to turn it into a video game to have a bigger appeal um, to a different kind of audience. And I would definitely love to do it as a movie, um, a comic book, maybe even a um, graphic novel. Uh, so there, there's a lot of stuff that I would like to do. Right now, I'm just kind of taking it step by step and working on the storyline. Um, I have an artist that I'm in talks with, and I don't want to give any details on that, but there may be a lot of drawings coming soon. Uh, so so this thing is really kind of developing in a step-by-step sort of process, but there's a lot of stuff I would love to do in the future to reach more people. 
Cool. Absolutely. Well, Minister Dante Fortson, thanks so much, man, for coming on the show. Do you have a website or something where people can check out more of your stuff? Yeah, actually, all of my books are available on www.ministerfortson.com. That's F-O-R-T-S-O-N.com. Silent Screamers has its own site. It's silentscreamers.net, and you can go on there and really uh, keep track of what's going on. I would suggest to those that are visiting either website, sign up for both mailing lists. It's 100% free. Just put your email address in the box, and you'll get updates, and you'll always know what's going on. Cool. Awesome. Well, everybody, make sure to go check that out. Get your PDF or paperback version of Silent Screamers. And one more time, thanks again, Minister Fortson, for coming on Canary Cry Radio. Thank you for having me on. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. We'll talk to you again soon. All right, there you have it. There was our conversation with Minister Dante Fortson. Yeah, there you have it. Awesome conversation. Very knowledgeable guy. Definitely knows his stuff. Yeah, I liked hearing about his his experience as a kid with the UFOs. And I think that's important because, you know, a lot of people have experiences like that and just don't talk about it. So uh, those of you out there with your own crazy UFO uh, experience, hopefully... That resonated with you a little bit and just know that now you can make it into an awesome fictional book and maybe a video game or your own book right that's that was where i was going with that yes oh so you're encouraging people to write their own book and make their own video games uh you know just a general creative uh renaissance all around for people with uh, ufo experiences no, I agree. I agree. There, it's it's a uh, it's a good time for that too, right? Because you you got all the tools you need in front of you, you know. Yeah, the computer, so the interwebs. It's just so easy. <laughs> <laughs> not at no, all. No, not really. But we totally encourage you it. anyway. Mm-hmm. Start and a then, blog. Yeah, and then you can come on the show, and we'll interview you, and you can be like, you know, I was never would have done this if it wasn't for you, Basil. You changed my life. And then I can be like, I know. <laughs> and then you can give me a free copy of your book. And this is this is why we do this. That's the whole reason. Free stuff. Free stuff. Um, okay, so there's that. Um, if you haven't yet, if you've made it through this entire episode and you have yet to go to the iTunes store and leave a review or a rating, why don't you just go ahead and do that now? Because um, Jesus would want it. I don't know. I'm sure he would. No, I'm sure he would too. And we have, uh, we've had lots of good stuff, you know, people posting nice, nice things or, or not so nice things. Um, so what else? Oh, t-shirts. Those are there. The t-shirts are there. If you're, if you're interested, if you're like, if you need another shirt, maybe you're not wearing one right now and, (laughs) and you're like, man, I really wish I had a shirt right now. Uh, you can go and do that there on the, what was a store page on the website? Yeah. Yeah. It's canarycryradio.com slash store. Store. And we've had some of our What's Up Norway and Finland um, listeners and some other places uh, ask us about shipping across the globe. And that is um, a possibility. Originally, we had added the shipping into the cost of the shirt. It just didn't even occur to us that it would need to go like 15,000 miles 
um, which is a little bit more expensive. So if you're in some faraway land, uh, give us an email beforehand and we can work it out. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, just to end this, Basil. Let's end this. Have you travoltized your name? I did. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, I did. Okay, for those of you who need a little background, on at the Oscars, John Travolta um, introduced a young singer to sing something and just totally butchered her name. Um, and should, I, should I play the clip? Yeah. I, mean, I think people have heard the clip by now. Yeah, but just play the clip. All right, here's the clip. Please welcome the wickedly talented one and only Adele Dazi. Okay, so that obviously was not her real name, and it was insane. The internet overnight, this, this uh, I don't know, app or widget or, or thing came out where you can like put in your own name and get your Travoltized version. Uh, Basil yeah. Travoltized is Bartos. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, John Travolta. What's yours, Gons? I'm going to do my full name um, just because I want to. Are you doing it right now? As yes. We... Wow. It's George Suzyvan. George. Yeah. All right, George. That's your new name. That's my new name. George, George from now on. Basil and George. Uh, Eric Cry Radio. Okay. Where is this so, going? Uh, nowhere. So here we go. <laughs> We're landing this plane. Okay, everybody. The plane is landing. Uh, thanks for listening this week to Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to tune in next time. Um, but until then, think outside the cage.